Thank you all for coming. Uh, Brian's running a little late, so I'm going to do the intro today. Uh, Dr. Wright is visiting us from Boston and wanted to give you a little bit of background and some housekeeping um, information. But Dr. Wright uh, worked and spent a great deal of time as a health educator for HIV prevention in San Francisco before he decided that med school um, was for him, at which point he went to Harvard Med and then stayed at Beth Israel big enough to do his training, where he was actually on staff for a number of years before he ended up where he is now, which is at the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program, where he heads up the Suboxone program. Um, and so today, he's coming to talk to us about the opioid, opioid epidemic, um, and he does not have any conflicts of interest. Uh, the other piece is that we have our code, and if you cannot see it on the postings, it is Q9WW, not case-sensitive. Uh, for nurses, you have to be present for at least 80% of the time to claim credit, as I think is the case for the rest of us as well. Um, any questions? Nope. No conflict of interest. So let's right. start. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> um, so thanks for having me up here. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I noticed from your name tags kind of a mix of clinical responsibilities. Um, without getting too into the weeds, how many folks here prescribe uh, injectable naltrexone for opioid use disorder? Anybody? Okay. How many folks prescribe buprenorphine outside of the hospital? All right. Awesome. Good. I'm going to try to have you be the leader of a parade. All right. Anybody, <laughs> anybody involved in a methadone? less common in a group like this. Okay, good. So um, I'm going to try to make the case for why more hands should be up. Um, and I'm also going to try to talk about um, uh, some of the things that we're seeing in our work that I think may overlap with your population and think about the intersection of HIV and the opioid epidemic. <clears throat> um, that intersection has, um, until fairly recently, been kind of diminishing. The first wave of folks who got HIV as a result of injection drug use um, sort of aged out or died or et cetera. And that kind of epidemic of injection drug use that was going on in urban centers, especially in the 1980s and early 1990s, kind of plateaued and um, you know there weren't lots of new people coming into that epidemic. So um, lots of folks in sort of general HIV clinics have gotten used to having a few folks around who are you know former injection drug users or who are very stable in their drug use um, but not living a super chaotic world of a clinic full of folks who are currently injecting. And um, I am afraid to tell you that that may change and it may already be changing. Is it already changing here? Yeah, okay. So hopefully we can think about that together. Um, this is this illustration on the title is from a paper I'll talk about very briefly about an HIV outbreak in a um, rural county in Indiana that you've probably heard about. We'll come back to that, but I want to especially talk about prevention as well today. All right, so I am a salaried employee of Boston Healthcare for the Homeless, which is a standalone nonprofit. We get a lot of Medicaid money. We have some private philanthropic support. I have a strange amount of support in the last four years of my career from Bob Kraft, so I am not here to talk about um, brain injury. Um, and I would have to declare a conflict, I guess, if I was. The Massachusetts League of Community Health Centers, uh, the GG Foundation. Um, we're going to talk, not in this order at all, uh, kind of objectives and talk. We'll, we'll, it's like a multiple choice test, it'll come as a surprise when I meet each objective. We'll talk about the different medications used for opioid use disorder. We'll talk about HIV prevention. Um, I want to talk about clinical policies which prioritize readiness to change and risk for death and think about how we think about that in opioid use disorder. And then say something briefly about methamphetamine use, which is freaking me out. We'll come back to why. Um, all right, so probably, can you all see this? Not really. Kind of a little, not really. Okay, so this is state data of uh, opioid overdose deaths in 2015 and 2010. Why 
West Virginia was all the way up here already in 2010. So when we think about the epicenter of the opioid epidemic, we often think about around here, but we're sort of number two, that West Virginia, um, Western Pennsylvania, Eastern Ohio area is really the hardest hit, um, which is concealed in the Ohio and Pennsylvania data a little bit just by um, the size of those states. But New Hampshire went from being a sort of fair to middling site of uh, opioid overdose to um, one of the highest, and I'm sure I don't need to tell you that. And New England in general uh, sort of had this large growth between 2010 and 2015, and then some subsequent growth since then. We may be seeing signs of plateau in Massachusetts, um, but uh, we are not sure yet. Most of that was the, the rise sort of from 2013-14 to now has really been about fentanyl coming into the drug supply. And there's lots of talk about, you know, user factors and why people are overdosing. I can't emphasize enough that I think this is a supply-driven epidemic. So people were overdosing from prescription drugs, and that was rising. People were overdosing from heroin when they switched from prescription drugs to heroin. Okay, so that story is the supply that, you know, we have to sort of raise our hands as prescribers and take some collective mea culpa for. But the extreme instability and unpredictability of the drug supply, and not just the potency, but the variability in potency, is what has driven this extreme jump over the last few years. So when you are cutting drugs, so if you're, if you, if you're a wholesaler and you have a supply of heroin, um, then you need to, you, you're not gonna put pure heroin out on the street. That's um, just a bad economic proposition. And it's actually sort of more difficult to deal with. You need a little bit of powder just to be able to work with. All right, systems have been set up over the years in the illegal economy to sort of dose that more or less consistently. Now, dealers go all over the map in terms of how they cut that, but there's some range. And if you think about you know, these relative amounts of, of the powder involved in, in mixing this, you can see that with such a smaller amount of powder that's the active ingredient, you're just going to make mixing errors, right? It's just impossible to, to do this unless you're, you know, a pharmaceutical company using good manufacturing processes. Now, I think the cartels may get better and better at controlling this, but it's really important to understand that it is not just that people are using, and it is not just that it is a higher potency drug, but it is unpredictably high potency. And that's important because if a cohort of users develops a tolerance for high-potency opioids, fine. They adjust their dose. They use the same dose every day. That's fine. You know, so you can be on 150 milligrams of methadone a day and go about your business, right? And if it's precisely dosed through a methadone clinic, cool. If you go from 30 milligrams of methadone to 120 milligrams of methadone and then 40, you're going to have a problem, right? You're going to be both in a cycle of withdrawal and intoxication, and those intoxication episodes are gonna be more dangerous because you don't know the upper end. And if any of you have given fentanyl um, in the ICU, you know it works quickly. We have reverse motion detectors in our bathrooms now uh, because we're right in the setting of a pretty intense urban drug use zone. We started uh, with six minutes, so if, the, if, it, if somebody went into the bathroom and then there was no movement for six minutes, the alarm went off. We've now reduced that to slightly under three minutes, and we will still find people with a you know, respiratory rate below six, um, turning blue, sort of needle just kind of, you know, they have not had any time to kind of clean up the scene. They've really just dropped out. And again, like if you've ever seen fentanyl given in the unit for quick sedation, you sort of know that's how it works, right? So IV push of fentanyl is an IV push of fentanyl, except, you know, imagine yourself as a nurse with an IV push of fentanyl with, I don't know what dose of fentanyl that is. <laughs> Just going to give it and hope for the best.
you want to have Narcan handy. Um, I kind of want to, so world historically, I think this is important. I think it's important in anticipating amphetamines. I think, this is my like little pet, you know, theory. There are lots of people who talk about the progression of potency as the result of prohibition or the result of policies. But there's another thing going on, which is that drug trafficking organizations are moving from controlling large areas of land. So, you know, in Southeast Asia, in, in Southeast Asia, in the 1960s and 70s, in uh, South America, in the 1980s and 90s, in Mexico. But it turns out, if you can synthesize these drugs, what you need is capital. They have plenty of capital. And some expertise, capital can buy expertise, and you can synthesize these with a lot less land. You don't have to worry about crop failures. There's a bunch of economic incentives for drug producers to continue to produce synthetic drugs. And you see this in both legal and illegal drugs. I mean, I think an interesting parallel would be nicotine, right? We've now just moved to just taking nicotine out of, you know, we don't need any tobacco, we don't need any plants, we don't need just nicotine. Um, so we're moving in that direction just because, you know, it's later in capitalism and technology and et cetera. So we have high potency synthetic drugs and that I would predict, not a historian or a world system sociologist, but you know, I dabble, I would predict that that's gonna continue to be a challenge. There's not gonna be some golden era that comes, returns back when we get the old school dope back. Um, it's gonna continue to be sort of uh, new things that are based on the supplier's needs as much as the market's demands. One of the reasons that I really uh, did not like a, a recent story about a, an economics paper that made the case that, that people were using more fentanyl because there was no, more Narcan, people are using more fentanyl because that's what's available. Um, so, all right, end of that. Um, Massachusetts passed a law called Chapter 55, which required the state to gather a bunch of data, county by county data, um, this shows the same story, which is, you know, the map that was one color turns another color, it's bad. Okay, mm -hmm. we got that already. But there's some interesting um, things that got pulled out of that data in the last uh, report, which was um, August of 2017, so a year and a bit ago. One of them, and this is a finding that's in the kind of heroin literature going back to you know, a, a paper in Scotland in the early 1970s, this is seen again and again, where opioid death rate is higher for individuals with histories of incarceration. And most of that death rate accrues in the first few weeks after release. So in Massachusetts, just take all comers, history of incarceration, not specifying opioid use disorder, 120 times higher death rate. Again, most of it accruing in the first few weeks after release. So when people come to our clinic and they say, I'm just out of jail, I want to start on Suboxone, we view that as a crisis. It is, you literally have it, you know, a sort of 14 to 28 day public health crisis that needs to be addressed. If they start using dope on the street after they get out of jail and they survive that, they survive their lowered tolerance, they survive their not knowing <coughs> what dose to take because they haven't been using the same dose on the street, um, and they survive the despair and distress that can come out of being released and finding nothing in their lives. And the line between overdose and suicide is often pretty gray, pretty fuzzy. Um, so I think there's a lot of reasons that people die in the first few weeks after they get out of prison. And I would argue that is a, uh, there's not that many prevention emergencies that might be a prevention emergency. Another really interesting one and a sad one was that in women who had opioid use disorder, at a baseline rate of overdose events, and this is overdose events per million person days, but the ratios is what's important. So one year before delivery, prior to conception, one rate, goes down slightly in the first trimester, which is probably because some women find out that they're pregnant within the first trimester. 
and then goes down sharply in the second and third trimester as women realize that they're pregnant, often get onto treatment, um, are really motivated not to use, they've decided to keep that pregnancy, they make changes. And um, I've seen lots of women go through that. In the time after delivery, the overdose rate goes up, back to a little bit of a baseline, and it goes way up in the six to 12 months after delivery. Now what's driving that? I don't know. I will say that clinically, I think some part of it is that a lot of women get their kids taken away, and that that period, that is sort of made final and complete by that six to 12 month period. And it's clear that this is not a story of rebirth and renewal, but a story of loss and despair. I think that increases your overdose risk. Um, but there may be others, that there's not as much attention to women who are six to 12 months after, right? We put all this fuss around you if you've just had a baby. We pay all this attention to you. You have to look at the baby every freaking three days to make sure that the toes are still the toes and the heart is still the heart, right? I mean, which is great, don't, don't get me wrong. Um, but we sort of put you back to your normal primary care doctor. We don't have so many visits. The number of pediatric visits starts to decrease. You're just not being watched. And so, um, uh, and, you know, postpartum <coughs> depression starts to have worse and worse effects if untreated in that period. So, Hard to know exactly what's driving that, but it's a very striking effect. Yeah, you, you, know, you probably know outside of Massachusetts, people that's also when people lose their insurance, right? So yes, women who get onto emergency Medicaid or Medicaid for pregnancy at six months, they're off. In Massachusetts, so that different, right? that that is that probably worsens the effect in non-Medicaid expansion states. We are as close to universal coverage as a state can be. Um, that is your. Your Medicaid coverage is not associated with your pregnancy, but continues. Now, you can fail to renew that because you didn't have a visit, and so you didn't go to the clinic, and so the clinic benefit coordinator didn't re-up your Medicaid. So that certainly happens. But it's probably, a, in Massachusetts, it's probably a, a, an outgrowth of not coming in for care rather than the, the other way around. So yes, in other states, Maine, I don't know about New Hampshire, um, yeah, ugly. Um, this is a sort of, I totally know what to do with this, but this was an interesting finding as well that's worth thinking about you know, as we continue to think about pain management, which has always been important in HIV care. So within a year after receiving three months of prescribed opioids, so if you've received three months of prescribed opioids four years ago, so they looked at people who'd received that much in 2011, regardless of what they've received since, the death rate goes up. And the death rate is to some extent dependent on how much of 2011 you were on a prescription opioid. So it's higher in that dark bar if you were on the prescription opioid for 12 months of 2011, but it's higher for all groups, including people who just received three months of a prescription opioid. This makes the argument, which I think is more complex and a whole other conversation that I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, about sort of the relationship between exposure and progression of your opioid use disorder. And the idea that exposure through the medical system does create opioid use disorder and risk of death from opioid use disorder to some extent. I think. Um, it can be hard to know whether folks who discovered oxycodone through us would have eventually discovered opiates as a cure for what ailed them, not just their physical pain, but the emotional pain that opioids also treat. Whether they would have found that in the setting of a growing opioid epidemic and lots of opioids on the street, but we seeded it. And we sort of still have responsibility for and when I think about my history as a primary care provider in an academic clinic, which is what I was before I was doing this more addiction-focused work, where I was not prescribing buprenorphine, but that whole system to get Percocet, 
prescriptions out the door more expediently because they were such a pain in the backside. Well over the majority of my prescribing I now regret. I'll say that without, you know, sort of saying that about any anybody in particular. So, um, at first year, four times greater risk than the general population of Massachusetts. And then that group that received three months, after five years now, has a 30 times greater risk than the general population of Massachusetts. I'm less certain about what to do with this, this slide, but it, you know, it makes me uncomfortable. The other important thing to know is that opiates prescribed to the person who died were found in only 10% of the overdoses, in the fatal overdoses. What that suggests is that this is the start of a process and it is not the end of a process. That is, most of the people who died, most of the associated risk of death associated with those prescriptions was not from the prescriptions. It was from what happened as the result of the prescriptions, right? They didn't die of the oxycodone that I, the earnest primary care doctor who wants to treat pain and wants to connect to my patients and have a collaborative relationship with my patients, not mocking that, I believe in that. I prescribed some Percocet because we're trying to find an agreement about how to deal with your suffering. What happens after that is an increased risk. Okay. So, history of incarceration I talked about, postpartum six to 12 months. Homeless people had a 16 to 30 times greater risk of incarceration, again, all comers, um, and serious mental illness. Um, six times greater. And then again, sort of prevention emergency. Past non-fatal <coughs> overdose, just under 10% of people who've had one overdose will die in the next two years. Looking again at this cohort data. All right. So the basics is naloxone or Narcan. Um, are folks distributing naloxone as part of your practice? You're prescribing it? Okay. How, how many folks have been able to use it outside of the hospital? Anybody? Again, I live in a, I work in a, I don't live in, I work in a zone that, um, where a lot of people are using. And I will tell you that the experience of finding somebody out on the sidewalk, I mean, I've used Narcan a lot in our clinic, those, those motion detectors go off. But being the person who just happens to be carrying it and gives it to somebody on the street, which has happened to me once, is a powerful experience that makes me continue to carry Narcan to this day. Uh, it lasts a long time, past its expiration date, getting hit. Um, I think also kind of remembering that it's family members and friends who are going to use it, but also that people with prescriptions for opioids are probably more likely to have their family members and friends using those opioids, whether knowledgeably or not. Um, distributing it to people who have prescriptions is, is a reasonable first step and making sure that people are aware of it. We are sometimes in our bathrooms using you know, more than the four milligrams, and I think especially for folks who are you know, outside an immediate 911 response, so all of your folks out in small towns here um, who may be 15 or 20 minutes away from a 911 call, they may need more than one kit. The four milligrams may not be sufficient. Um, so I, I think a lot of folks of harm reduction programs are starting to put two uh, four milligram injectors into a single sort of naloxone kit. Your mileage may vary and you know, talking to folks about what they've done to people who are active users about what they're needing is also probably helpful. Um, there's this super fancy airport defibrillator style FZO1 that actually talks to you. Um, <laughs> It's amazing. I had a little trainer kit. I, I mean, it's great. Uh, and then there's the completely budget, you know, non-FDA approved one, which just took a hospital vial of it and added a nasal auto injector, which is what harm reduction programs were using up until sort of last year. And then this um, single package nasal thing. All right. Questions about that? I'm about to change gears and talk about prevention in a second. Questions or thoughts or okay, we'll come back. Um, so this is Scott County in Indiana. I don't know. This 
detail on this is just not coming through. So I'm going to tell you the headline, which is that uh, in a group of people who were pres who were mostly injecting a prescription drug that I had never heard of, frankly, before this outbreak of Opana. I, I don't know. Go figure. There's always something. Um, so medical medical opiates, um, but a, a tight-knit rural community of injectors. So if, you, if folks have not kind of read through this paper and thought about it in terms of this community and in terms of the world of New Hampshire and Vermont, read it. I mean, this is, it's, it's a really frightening outbreak of um, a lot of HIV cases, which plateaued um, just under 200. Um, syringe, Mike Pence, thankfully, was able to prey on it and decide that needle exchange was okay. I mean, I'm not making a joke. That's literally what happened. Um, and, uh, and so they opened needle exchange. The story of the epidemic, anyway, is that that helped plateau things. I think probably testing and treatment and just aggressively doing case finding, trying to make sure that people had treatment available to them is also obviously really important. Um, so I think the finding, they tried to you know, do this, again, the headline is, there's really only one big factor that pops out as the risk factor for who in this community got infected and who didn't. And that is, you saw that big kind of network analysis thing on the first part. So the median number of times you were named as other, by other people as the syringe sharing partner <coughs> was associated with whether you became HIV infected. That means if you were in the core of a network who were sharing not just with one other person, but with several other people, that is, several people could say that yeah, I shared with Joe. And then the epidemiologists interview another person. Yeah, I shared with Joe too. I shared with Joe. All right. Then Joe is more likely to be infected. Does that make sense? Okay. So it's really the network, the density of the network, the density of connections in the network. And folks who've done STD work will sort of recognize this, you know, kind of intuitively. Um, it's the density of the network that predicts the rapid spread. And again, in rural communities where there's you know, a big enough critical mass of people who are using, um, who need to trust each other and look out for each other and share each other's supplies in order to get through the day and not have withdrawal, there's a lot of mutual aid and a lot of mutual obligation and a lot of debts that people accrue with each other to try to keep each other going and keep each other out of withdrawal. And so... Uh, you know, the smaller and tighter a community, the more likely that this is to happen. Looking at outbreaks in general, if people don't realize HIV is a threat locally, people don't have access to sterile syringes, there's frequent injecting, so um, there are <coughs> clusters of places where people were injecting cocaine, where they were injecting more frequently, um, which have been associated with outbreaks. And then large injection risk networks and rapid change of partners in that, those networks. All right. Um, there's a recent cluster investigation of new cases. I can just cite like a preliminary memo that the Mass DPH put out. But there were sort of two to three clusters of 129 epidemiologically linked cases. So they're epidemiologically linked cases, same community, same set of folks but two to three distinct clusters when you looked at it molecularly. More than half of the new diagnoses suggested recent infection, and they did antibody avidity testing, so the maturation of your immune system's response to the, to the HIV infection. So fentanyl has a shorter half-life, and there was a lot of concurrent use of stimulants in this population, and both of those led to more frequent injection events probably. 42% of the cases, and this is not always the case in, in outbreaks among injection drug users, 42% of the new cases were among women. More than half of those women uh, interviewed reported sex work. 
I'm not going to have a whole discourse about sex work, but if folks have been following kind of um, laws around trafficking, there's a lot of uh, new incentive to do street work or difficulty doing anything other than street work, which is sort of a risky way to do sex work. And if you are in the advanced stage of opioid use disorder, there's a bunch of reasons why it's more expedient to do street work anyway. That probably means more frequent partners, um, less careful selection of partners, less ability to control your own safety. A whole bunch of things about that represent HIV risk. Uh, this probably doesn't come as a surprise, but 90% of these new cases were hep C antibody positive. They didn't report how many had active um, infection versus cleared infection. So uh, we may or may not, I can't really report on this because we're really just trying to sort it out at the moment. We may or may not be facing a little cluster of our own. We have access to sterile syringes. We hope that people realize that HIV is a threat. We're worried um, as we're starting to see this. A couple of additions to that kind of literature thing about why does an outbreak happen. So per perceptions of risk may be hyper-local. That is, it may not be sufficient to say there are people, you know, in Lawrence and Lowell, practically walk there, who are getting HIV, if you say the only people I deal with are in my town in Vermont or in my town in New Hampshire, right? I don't care about Lawrence, I don't deal with those people, they're scumbags. Um, so that, that has nothing to do with me. There may be needle exchange. I am still trying to work out the math, and I was thinking about this, both because we sort of have this new cluster and because, maybe cluster, um, and because of this talk, so if injection events increase by 100% to 300%, we probably need to increase syringe access by more than 300%. And this is like very back of the envelope math. I can't say anything more sophisticated about that. But I think if you're multiplying risk by creating more injection events, you need to more multiply the amount to which you respond to that risk. I sort of have vague curves in my head. I'll leave that to folks who want to model that. But I think you have to at least get to the number of injection events. And so if you say we have needle exchange, and we've had a slight growth in the number of needles we've, we've increased, but the drug supply has changed, and what people are using has changed, and they're injecting three times as often in a day, you have to have a massive expansion, and we have not done that. Uh, we haven't even done that in Boston, where we literally have like a city-funded needle exchange with union needle exchange workers. It's awesome. I have it like, <laughs> like take their breaks, and then we go back and do needle exchange. Amazing. Um, so to stop spreading those networks, uh, we also have to be engaged with the people in those networks. We have to have a test and treat strategy, but we have to have one that is not coercive, but one that kind of takes their needs and priorities into account. I'm saying that, I'm trying to figure it out. I feel like I am failing at the moment. I'll talk a little bit more about that. So I mentioned the Kraft Foundation. Um, I am part of a project called CareZone, I'll show you the man in a second, um, where, um, we go around and do mobile buprenorphine prescribing as well as working with our local unionized needle exchange organization through the city um, that does needle exchange and other harm reduction outreach. So we distribute clean syringes, we distribute Narcan, and I do suboxone prescribing. Sometimes I do some abscess drainage. Sometimes I do some tinea pedis treatment, uh, you know, kind of whatever comes up uh, to try to meet people's priorities. This is an area called the Fens in Boston. If you've ever been to the Museum of Fine Arts, it's kind of right across from there. There's these big reeds. And you can see here, there's just like a little cut in the reeds, completely inconspicuous. And actually, one of the entrances to this little area is even more inconspicuous than that. Basically, folks who started this site uh, kind of used a technique that I think was used like in the Nile River where you like like in, in antiquity, where you cut down some of those reeds, use it as a mat, and then kind of build your stuff on top of that. 
in a, in a wetland. It's a wetland. So they actually had, this is a bed. This is actually a sofa bed you can see here. Um, and a set of people who were doing both heroin and meth in an area that had been, that traditionally has been a, a public sex cruising ground. Now, the public sex cruising part has been diminished somewhat by, by internet technology and disruptive technology, uh, but there's still some loyalists who try to meet the guys down there, the, the old ways. Um, and uh, with that set of people who were coming down there for sex also came meth. And then some folks who had been using heroin and were kind of graduating to meth in addition to their heroin also came to this area because it was someplace you could find meth. So we actually have a convergence of two epidemics in this place, um, which has been quite concerning. When I heard mobile van, I was kind of imagining this like beat up econoline, you know, harm reduction, reverse glamour kind of thing. And I, I really had to get over how tricked out and you know fancy our New England Patriots funded harm reduction van <laughs> was. Uh, but it's lovely. We actually have an exam table. We can do pap smears in there. Um, I think Lawrence and Lowell is actually trying to do some mobile buprenorphine prescribing um, and trying to do this. Uh, but we're out there once a week. So we can pat ourselves on the back. But again, if there's like six injection events a day, and we're there once a week. I'm not, you know, maybe that's enough, maybe it's not. All right, so talking about prevention. Meal syringe programs, medication prediction treatment, antiretroviral treatment. So just traditional public health. We're gonna eliminate the vectors of transmission. We're gonna keep the needles virus-free, right? And the cookers and the works and all that. By doing medication for addiction treatment, including low threshold treatment where people are probably still using some, we're reducing the number of injection events. So even if they're going back and forth between buprenorphine and dope, which is now my technical term for the mixture of heroin and fentanyl and whatever else, um, there's a literature, fentanyl adulterated or substituted heroin, FASH, but I'm not quite ready to say FASH. Um, so call it DOPE as your technical abbreviation for that mixture of opioid. And then antiretroviral treatment, obviously, controlling the infectious agent. Okay, so just like, just real straight up public health ID stuff. And then reduce the susceptibility of uninfected people. I'm going to say, and I would have said this three months ago or six months ago, but I especially feel it right now worrying about some new infections. We have not figured out PrEP and injection drug users. Uh, and we just haven't. You're probably aware that there was a trial of tenofovir only um, in Bangkok with a nearly 50% reduction in new infections in the tenofovir group. It was higher with better adherence. It's not clear why a difference didn't begin to appear until three years into the trial. That makes you think that there were other factors at work, sort of staff changes, changes in how they encourage adherence. Hard to know why that is, but why those lines match up and then diverge is not obvious. And I, I feel like I'm here right now, and I need to be here, uh, and I have not figured out how to do that, not being in Bangkok. Another thing is that PrEP has to cost less. So if we're really to get the systems to make PrEP work for injection drug users, we have to be able to waste some medication, frankly. We have to be able to give some medication to people who are gonna lose it. And when it costs as much as it does per month, that's hard. Even in an ideal situation, this cost-effectiveness analysis ended up suggesting that a PrEP approach with other things, uh, but focusing on PrEP, would be a cost of $300,000 per quality adjusted life year. So to, to measure interventions, WHO sometimes suggests three times annual GDP per individual GDP. So, you know, way over that. So how do we do this? Again, I haven't figured it out. What we are trying to figure out is how we do coordination of care, including lab work. How do we meet people out on the streets? and figure out how to do the lab work that we feel like is necessary to do PrEP successfully. Do we need all of that lab work? 
which of the lab work do we really have to have and which can we dispense with? I'm trying to figure that out. Another obstacle, um, I had prescribed prep to a guy who seems to be a new case. Uh, he went to the pharmacy. He, I prescribed him a seven-day supply because he was super unstable. He lost stuff all the time. I said, like, just give me a seven-day supply, and then I'll see you when you renew your Suboxone, also on a seven-day, and I'll give you, you know, we'll do this week by week. Well, so the pharmacy said, no, the instructions on the Truvada bottle say you can't dispense it seven at a time. It has to stay in the bottle, right? Now, it happens, especially pharmacies put this in bubble packs all the time, and nobody dies. Like, we're okay, right? You get undetectable viral load on people who've got bubble packs. But Gilead says you have to use their bottle. So uh, we have to figure out how to do that. And then we have to figure out who, if you lose that script, 30 days or seven days, you, you lose that amount, whatever amount we gave you, who, who pays for you to restart? That argues for shorter supplies, but then you have to have an infrastructure to be able to pull off the earlier supplies. Again, I've not figured this out. Someone wants an academic project, it is, I mean, this is, do it. Um, we are really missing opportunities to do this, and it's frightening. Um, it's also, talking to academics, potentially inspiring, so. <laughs> RO1, awesome. But you don't think that long-acting injectables are going to be, uh, there we go, sorry. Currently expected in 2021, though, the cabotegravir results. So, too late. We, we will one is not done earlier. <laughs> maybe. Uh, yeah, maybe they'll stop early. That would be great, if you know something I don't. Um, so that would be great. Um, I think that also dovetails with injected buprenorphine, which is now theoretically available, and over coming months will be more practically available. So a bunch of logistical barriers to making injectable buprenorphine work, but it, I think it will become more available. Um, it's not dramatically more effective. It's non-inferior. Uh, in, in one version, it was proven non-inferior to sublingual, but it's not clearly superior, um, which is interesting because you always think that adherence is really the issue with buprenorphine, and it may or may not be. You know, it may be that if you continue to use on top of your depot that you just develop enough tolerance to get effect. Uh, it would cost a lot, but if you had a much higher real-world efficacy, that might be worth the cost. The cabotegravir tail effect is what worries me. So when I first heard about this, I thought, oh, this is, you know, my, my population, I'm gonna be like handing out cabotegravir injections just to, like to everyone, just line up and get your cabotegravir. But this tail of resistance is really worrying. So ironically, depending on kind of how that plays out, it may be only the most adherent and reliable patients we can actually give cabotegravir injections to for treatment. And then what that will mean in terms of of resistance in acquired cases of people who were on their tail of cabotegravir vanished from here, we don't know yet. So things to fret about and think about. Um, just to compare sort of substance use disorders, skip fairly quickly through this part, but two doctors. A doctor has a physical dependence on a substance. They have three different ways of purchasing that substance on their phone always benefits from effects, never experiences painful physical withdrawal, often talks about needing a substance of choice and his peer group supports his use. All right, does this person have a substance use disorder? Um, no. Um, if you think about addiction or substance use disorder as use despite adverse consequences, if I drink my coffee, and I, look, I have Duncan, I have Starbucks, and I have a local one called Flower, I have their ordering apps on my phone. Like, I gotta have my <coughs> stuff, right? Uh, but I'm not stealing anything. I'm not alienating my family. I'm, you know, performing my job better, if anything. Uh, there's no, you know, way in which I'm suffering consequences. I check the coffee literature, thinking about cigarettes parallel to this. I check the coffee literature to make sure I'm still okay. I'm still okay. Better luck. And, and if anyone knows different, don't. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> because that's the part of my denial that's helpful. But
But um, I used to have, in residency training, there was this liver attending who would go around the you know, like end-stage liver disease patients and be like, sir, were you a coffee drinker? And the person would be like, you know, no. And they would sort of look to the residents like, this all, this all could have been prevented. It's terrible deterioration in liver function. So not a substance use disorder. Just to highlight in a way that's easy, you know, we know this intellectually, but connect emotionally to the fact that physical dependence is not addiction. Right? Okay. A doctor uses a substance but is not physically dependent. They use it by taking a little off the line, but only a little, but not so much that the patient won't get enough. Doctor recently didn't show up to a case, was found sedated in a call room, said it was doing too much locums work. This is just to remind you that the first people with fentanyl use disorders were anesthesiologists. Um, there's a, a doc who died in um, the hospital where I trained of an overdose, sort of found in a closet. Um, so this is somebody who's not necessarily physically dependent, may or may not be, but certainly is having adverse consequences to themselves and to others and has a substance use disorder. So if you're referring people to rehab programs without methadone, they're often using a 12-step model and they're assuming 12-step as the follow-up. I want to emphasize that I think that 12-step is one of the most important social movements for health in the 20th century and I'm somebody who did like historical research about AIDS activism. I still think that. 12-step movement is an incredibly transformative movement in a bunch of different ways. It contains profound insights, and it contains the sort of power of what folks in 12-step call fellowship. In alcohol use disorder, the medical risks of an abstinence-only approach are probably not as dramatic, other than the immediate detox period. In opioid use disorder, Fellowship also means that there's sort of group and ideas and norms that can be exclusionary or problematic for some, including being on medication. And this used to include SSRIs in many 12-step groups. Being on medication is not sobriety. If you're trying to treat your mind, your mood with medication, you are not really in recovery. Methadone and buprenorphine reduce mortality by about 50%, while abstinence increases overdose risk for those who use it, again, because their tolerance is low. All right. So abstinence makes sense for some folks. I would argue that if people want to go that way, they might want to think about naltrexone uh, to give them some degree of protection. But um, there is not a clear mortality benefit to referring to meetings. All right. And there may be a negative effect if that's all that people have available to them. So methadone, been around since the 1960s, a full method, a full agonist. The way it works is to be very long acting and as a result to not have the peaks and troughs that cause intoxication and withdrawal, but just to have a steady state. People go to, you know, it's an artifact of our legal evolution that is not available in pharmacies as it is in Canada and some other countries, but just available through tightly regulated, federally regulated methadone programs. But it does reduce mortality about, by about 50% in the Massachusetts data and a number of other studies. This is for all comers who started. It's not distinguishing people who came off of methadone at some point and people who stayed on it. So all comers who started methadone. We're on it for some period of time. Buprenorphine, um, get wavered if you haven't been wavered. I almost don't want to tell you because you should get wavered so you learn, right? Like I don't even want to say anything about buprenorphine because you should get wavered. How many people are wavered? How many people have your X number? Okay, good. There should be so many more. Look at, you're only behind New Hampshire. And the HIV prevention benefits of Suboxone prescribing are huge. When you get somebody coming out, going on to your you know, long-term antibiotics program for endocarditis, there's clear evidence that this is a life-saving intervention, as important as protecting their valve from recurrence of infection. So, I left the Beth Israel because my general medicine clinic was really dragging its feet about buprenorphine. One of the things that kicked my backside out the door was an ID fellow who said, 
well, your clinic isn't doing it, but why don't you just do it? And I had a bunch of good reasons, cross coverage, and I'd be out on a limb if I did it. I didn't like those answers. I ended up going to healthcare for the homeless for that and other reasons. But in the meantime, the ID clinic at the Beth Israel actually did start prescribing buprenorphine to people who had injection-related causes for their ID hospital admissions and started bridging them to other buprenorphine programs, saying 50% reduction in mortality, not picking up injection and injection-related infections and harms is part of the package of antibiosis. And it can be done in the clinic. It can be done in a clinic partly because it has a ceiling effect. So instead of pushing the button, re-engaging re and engaging and disengaging and engaging the receptor, it engages and then tightly binds. And that has the effect of creating a ceiling effect. Once it has tightly bound all of those receptors, then there's not a lot of more that you can get out of taking extra buprenorphine. So it is hard to overdose on buprenorphine alone. It is possible to overdose on buprenorphine plus other things, especially benzos, but even that clinically has not been as significant as benzos and heroin, which means that the FDA has actually put out an advisory that says don't stop buprenorphine just because people are taking benzos. Buprenorphine is a pretty safe drug. Again, take the waiver course, you'll learn the, the exceptions. Naltrexone is attractive to a lot of clinics and to criminal justice systems in particular because it doesn't involve controlled substances and doesn't involve the emotionally difficult work of prescribing dope to dope addicts, which is just like, as providers, we just have a hard time with that. And I'm gonna put it that bluntly, prescribing dope to dope addicts, because you gotta get past that emotionally in order to do this. You gotta understand that yes, it's an opioid, but it reduces mortality. Naltrexone also probably reduces mortality. In a head-to-head -head comparison of buprenorphine and naltrexone, they worked about equally well for people who started the naltrexone. But if you do an intent-to-treat analysis, about 8% of people dropped out before they started the buprenorphine, and about a quarter of the people dropped out before they start, started naltrexone. You have to be opioid-free for a week and a half. That's hard. So it makes more sense coming out of jail or um, you know, for somebody who's had a prolonged period of abstinence already, so their tolerance is already low, you're not increasing the risk. The thing I worry about in my population with naltrexone is that if you miss that 30-day follow-up, I assume that sometime around day 40 or 45 or 50, the risks that go along with coming out of jail, the biological risks of reduced tolerance, are going to accrue and that your overdose risk is going to increase. There's not clear evidence for that. There's some hints that that might be the case, but it is not yet clear. But you should fret about whether people are going to follow up. The fact that it is a monthly injection is not a cure to adherence problems. It is an adherence problem. Does that make sense? Okay. So a useful drug, but something where you really need to know that you can do that 30-day follow-up or else you're going to have the risk of decreased tolerance without any follow-up. Make sense? Okay. So for people with HIV, retention in opioid treatment, methadone or buprenorphine is associated with long-term viral suppression. It's especially important in creating sustained viral suppression in those who weren't already on ART. And it's more successful in people who are treated in their home HIV clinic than those referred to an outside program. So there's papers bottom of that for each of those propositions. All right, briefly, methamphetamines. Um, I don't have a paper for you. This is relatively new, but we are certainly seeing in our neighborhood more and more methamphetamines. Are you seeing that here? Okay. Newspaper reports about more seizure data. Are you seeing folks injecting meth? Yes. Okay. Um, I assume y'all are, you know, as much on the cutting edge of whatever's going on drug use as, as we are in the middle of Boston. So injected meth on top of you know, people who've been using opioids. It happens that in lots of people who have substance use disorder over time, they move from their drug of choice to a more complex drug use pattern. So it's not surprising that people who are using opioids are also starting to pick up methamphetamines. And it's also not surprising that you know uh, people who might be avoiding one drug are picking up another. 
Um, our recent new HIV cases have all been in people who use both. I think the combination of sexual risk, so people have different perceptions and relationships to sex with meth use that you know, any HIV clinic will be familiar with sort of from both sides of the aisle of people who are using meth. Um, so a lot of sexual risk. Um, and then injection risk, and that combination, I think, is going to be a really uh, threatening one in terms of um, the growth of HIV in coming years. There's not medication proving to treat it, and the structures that we have spent these years set up to deal with medication-assisted treatment may not be sufficient to treat people with methamphetamine use disorder that also accompanies their ID. This is part two of I haven't figured it out. All right, like a confused and distressed and like I might see a therapist like I really don't know exactly what to do with this programmatically or even personally as a clinician kind of how to shape a harm reduction oriented approach that I have in opioid use disorder to methamphetamine use that re really requires behavioral health interventions because we don't have a whole lot else does that make sense okay huge question mark again R01 um, all right, I've talked too long. I'm trying to say too much because I'm really excited about coming to New Hampshire and being like, <laughs> such an opportunity. Uh, so I'm sorry, but I'm going to leave this as a question anyway and for folks who can stick around. So a 34-year-old man presents to clinic accompanied by outreach workers with a new diagnosis of HIV. Get more from a medical student working with an underground needle exchange project. Understand there are some Dartmouth uh, medical students who are trying to do something with the Vermont folks. Anyway, props to them. You hear that this man is a loosely organized group of people who inject heroin and meth, are sleeping in trucks and trailers, have periodic interactions with the needle exchange group. Um, oh, I didn't change, sorry. The medical student says that his girlfriend is doing sex work and it's um, riskier and riskier. What can your clinic do next? I'm going to finish the talk and then hopefully come back to that. Um, the last thing is to think about when we make up rules. So once you get your waivers, you're going to start thinking, well, we need a bunch of rigid structure around prescribing buprenorphine in our clinic because that's what people need. And it turns out that's what we need. We like that. So who are we making the rules for when we require in-office induction for when we require formal intake processes beyond a medical evaluation, a multi-day process, require a wait list, ask people to call weekly to maintain their spot on the list. So things that programs do. There are a bunch of other examples like this. The folks who can do this are the folks who are ready to change. I would argue, and the way we have evolved over time, is moving from readiness to risk. We do not need to focus on the people who are most ready to change. They are ready to change. So we need to facilitate their change and be available to them and give them the structure that they want and need to be able to do that, but we also need to be able to find the people who are at highest risk, both of HIV infection and death from overdose. And so I'll just say that and conclude with thanks for your attention and hopefully the chance to answer some questions and have a conversation. State of Massachusetts, if, if an opioid use disorder client is incarcerated, can he be treated or she be treated while they're incarcerated? So that is a moving target. There was just a case brought by the ACLU to say that the one particular county jail's refusal to prescribe methadone to somebody who'd been on it before incarceration was a violation of their rights under the ADA, which is a legal argument I agree with. That person is getting methadone. Um, that, that patient for whom the ACLU brought that case is getting methadone. And there is now, there's now been legislation that says that there will be jails that will be pilots for prescribing. And we're actually starting a, a project where we're supposed to start prescribing um, in our county jail shortly. But it has not been like Rhode Island. So in New England, the real example of doing this has been Rhode Island, where they've been doing this for a long time. And they've actually had you know, a drop in mortality from overdose overall statewide, not just in people who've been incarcerated as a result of that intervention. 
So if you Google Rhode Island incarceration MIT, um, there's sort of a bunch of both popular and, and academic articles about this, and I think it's, um, we have not stepped up yet, but I think between the court case and this new legislation, we're about to. And I think that the sheriffs are starting to feel the pressure. What's going to happen in the state prison system, I think, is less clear, and then the federal prison system that has no pressure on it without court cases probably will not do that anytime soon. Yeah, but really, I mean, this is the opportunity, right? If that risk, we're talking about a prevention emergency, make it not an emergency, right? Just prescribe before they walk out the door, before that emergency presents itself. It's such an obvious solution. Um, and there's a bunch of reasons that criminal justice systems or incarceration systems have, have not been ready to do that, and hopefully they're starting to also tired of the revolving door, right? I think if you can sell people on, you can actually help try to solve this problem, they, they might be happy about that. Other questions or thoughts? Yeah. Um, there's no literature on how to deal with math in, uh, from the West, because, I mean, the Western states have seen this for much longer than we have here. Yeah. So there's lots of trials in how to treat methamphetamine use disorder, which have mostly been negative trials or very small, sort of suggestively maybe a little bit hopeful. You know, so people will say, well, we should do Rimeron or we should do this or that. There's like sort of small but inconclusive things that might point to one thing or another that you can try, but nothing that is sort of FDA approved and nothing even that's kind of, you know, ready for FDA approval. So in terms of that medication approach, there has not been. I think one of the, when I talk about like my struggle of what to do with this, I came into this as an epidemic public health focused internist, right? Basically an ID doc who said that opiate is, I mean, I'm not an ID doc, I'm an HIV doc, but not an ID doc, but basically somebody who said that opioid is the new infectious agent, it moves in an epidemic curve, it, you know, it has all these things that are familiar to me from HIV. And so as an internist, I'm ready to do something about this calls to me. It is harder as, a, as an internist to figure out what to do to, with something that doesn't have a, something you can prescribe, right? And now I'm like, God, psychiatrists who do those four-year residencies, maybe there's something they do during those four years. I don't know. Turns out, maybe. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, and then there have been, you know, various other... I mean, we're, we're sort of trying to figure out things and trying to call our West Coast uh, colleagues about things like kind of milieu management. Yeah, I recently had somebody have this kind of uh, like very like involuntary Korea kind of movements from being so intoxicated on methamphetamines that he basically had a movement disorder. Um, just could not stop kind of doing this. Um, and, um, and then we tried to give him a benzodiazepine to help that, and we created a little bit of disinhibition and didn't treat his chorea. So that was a failure. Mm. Um, so intoxication syndromes, we're not great at. I don't know how to deal with that in our sort of drop-in clinic necessarily. And then treating the underlying disorder, we're not great at. And um, so there's some evidence in stimulants in general, both in methamphetamines and cocaine, for um, incentives. I'm having an aphasia on the word that I know about the, the technical term. But using, um, sorry, contingency management. Uh, the, the literature term is contingency management, which basically means getting rewards for tox screens in which you don't have um, the substance of interest. That maintains as long as you have rewards. The rewards don't have to be huge. They can be movie tickets or burgers or things like that. People like getting the rewards, and they seem to sort of rally for that. But the effect seems to diminish once you stop giving out those rewards. Um, that requires some clinic infrastructure that we don't currently have and some money that we don't currently have, even for burgers, right? Um, but that is another thing that some clinics and research projects have done. And something you, know, you could think about. I mean, certainly in thinking about the person who you know, you're trying to get through a 10-week course of antibiotics, you could think about some movie tickets. Um, so there might be some creative ways to do that even in the short term if you have like a very, I mean, the, the flip side of being an internist is you can focus on these very achievable 
time-limited medical goals. Like, I'm ready to be in... It's not time-limited. I mean, it's like four or five, six months out. People are miserable. Yeah. I mean, and and I think that's one of the challenges, is it doesn't necessarily get better, the flatness and the depression and... and Yes. The the lack of any spark. uh, The misery. It gets... At four or five, six months when they're so far from using seems like the cha- a lot of the challenge. Yeah. You probably see a lot more of those folks than I do. I haven't gotten there yet. Um, and actually, probably our folks leave my clinic by then if they've managed to get to six months. But yeah, I think it's really challenging. And, th- and that's a psychiatric challenge, right? How do you reawaken people and find any sense of joy or purpose in this kind of like neurologically flattened state? Yeah. I'm sorry to be like, I'm very optimistic about the opioid side. <laughs> I'm in a mood about the methamphetamines, obviously. I'm, I'm really, uh, I've had a bad week around this. But, but um, so the, the opioids, we have clear, clear tools. I think the methamphetamines we're really still figuring out. And I think it's striking HIV. I mean, there's been this huge literature about methamphetamine use in folks with HIV and the MSM, right? And a lot of potential money and research you know, going into that and not a huge amount of tools that come out the other end. So that's been distressing. I think the thing is that in men who have sex with men, it's really been a small number who move to injection, where when you see people who are already injecting moving to methamphetamine, that's a larger number of people who are moving to injection. So it becomes more scary. Yeah. You, so just a quick word about how do you deal with all the record requirements, you know, that the data 2000 puts on you for when you go out and prescribe and read? Just our EMR. So you do enter people in the EMR then? then we then. do. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we're just, I mean, we're doing Medicaid visits on a van. All right. So okay. the, the trick there is that we had to license our van through the state DPHS clinic. Okay. We have sort of these various deals with the state where we've licensed the streets of Boston as a clinic site. Oh, nice. So okay. we, can, we can bill for visits in that clinic site. Um, but that requires special sort of exemption and licensing. Um, but otherwise, we basically run it as a, as a moving clinic. Yeah. And that's not an obstacle to folks? Folks don't mind registering with you and the whole bit? No, because they're getting Suboxone, okay. A. B, because you know they've been in emergency departments and been in the EMR, right? They've, been in, they've had overdoses in hospitals. They've been in our clinic. It's pretty rare that we are registering somebody so the experience of being registered is not new. Now, this is street-dwelling people in Boston. So, you know, the general contractor in Nashua might have a different take on that. Um, but on the other hand, I think the general contractor in Nashua is more likely to be able to come in the door and, like, come to the clinic and sort of have the privacy of the clinic, however you do that. So... Um, yeah, that has not been our major obstacle. Our obstacle has been follow-up more than initiation. Other thoughts or questions or arguments or objections? <laughs>